morning, Valley family. We are in week number two of our series that we're calling America. And specifically today, I want to talk about the free and the brave. Uh, we, we really thought it would be timely to do a series, three-part series, uh, during this time of the year here in the United States uh, when, when we're in this election cycle. And, and, and really our hope, our sincere hope as the pastoral staff here is to really help uh, the, the Valley family to avoid election infection. And uh, uh, it, it's really building. I, I think most of us are aware. Uh, anyway, latest polls say it's a dead heat. Uh, and, and the big presidential debate's coming up tomorrow, uh, next Sunday. And uh, things are going to get really crazy now since it, everything's neck and neck. And, and yet I think that God wants to do something in and through not only us as a church family, but in and through our lives uh, as well. And I think that with all of this kind of election infection going on, uh, it's a great opportunity for us as the people of God to really be the people of God. So that's why we're taking these three weeks. Uh, last week we talked about Purple Rain. If you missed that, that's R-E-I-G-N, uh, not the song by Prince, uh, although that's on my phone. But anyway, uh, uh, but, but, but God wants to reign over us, and his reign is much, much higher, much, much larger uh, and, and much more timely, or in other words, it's eternal for all time that he wants to reign over us. So God's not blue. He's not a Democrat. He's not red. He's not Republican. Uh, God is like God. He's purple. Uh, and that's what you get when you mix red and blue together. Next week, we're going to be concluding this series. Uh, actually, Susie and I won't be here, but Pastor Stephen is going to be concluding this series with a message he's working on. I'm so excited about him giving it called The Separation of Church and Hate. And so you want to make sure that you're here next week uh, for the conclusion of this. I want to start off by saying thank you, Valley Family, for praying for me and for Susie and the staff. We had nine of our staff down in Atlanta this week. We are kind of dragging a little bit. Uh, but we host uh, our Connexus Conference, which is the conference, uh, joint conference between the network of ministers that I'm president of uh, and also Christian Life School of Theology. And uh, it, it went fantastic. We've been having that conference since 1983. This is only the second time I've been responsible for it, and so many said it was the best conference ever. And we're already working behind the scenes to bring that right here uh, to Hopewell Junction in the spring and in the fall. Uh, of 2017 so it's pretty awesome just uh, I was talking to one of the staff members recently uh, that's been on staff just for a couple years and they said I had no idea the impact the Valley Christian Church is making on a global scale so in that conference there was only about 65 people there but if you think about it if I talked about it in terms of Roman Catholic uh, kind of uh, terms uh, every, almost every single one there is a bishop so there's over a thousand churches that are represented by the 65 people that are in the room right there and just really amazing to be able to share with them what's going on here in New York and they're like we need more help we, we, we really need some help so I said why don't we all just come up here to New York so we're really uh, blessed to be a part uh, and, and to be the president I am uh, blessed to be the president of that network also Susie and I pray for us again now now don't don't hate on us because you got to hear what's going on we're leaving on Wednesday uh, flying down to Cayman Islands for uh, ministry actually because 
in actuality, our network's growing in the Caribbean, and that's okay with me. Uh, and, and so we're flying down there for five days, speaking at a church there. Susie's doing a ladies' conference. I'm doing a men's conference, leadership development, full-scale church uh, consultant as well. And, and maybe we'll get a day at the beach. I don't know. Uh, but we're going to be crazy, crazy busy. In fact, I, when I left the house this morning, I told Susie, you realize this is the seventh time I preached in eight days. That's just kind of the, the, the pace that uh, we're going at right now. We're empty nesters, and uh, man, we, we have plenty to keep us busy. I had to decline the Cayman Islands two times uh, over the last five years, and finally I said, okay, we're empty nesters now. I'll come down. So please pray for us. It'll be beautiful and tropical, but we're going to be crazy busy uh, as well, building God's kingdom, and that's nothing that we enjoy more uh, than that. Uh, but for today, today's message, I want to talk about the free and the brave. And, and you know, I love that, that little bumper roll in there, the Star Spangled Banner. And uh, isn't it just crazy that even that's become controversial now? That even the Star Spangled Banner has become controversial. Now let me just say this, just kind of FYI, take it or leave it, my humble opinion. Okay, and uh, no one values my opinion as much as I do. But let me just say this. So between playing high school football and coaching high school football, uh, involved with high school football for over 16 years, I started thinking, I've been on the sideline for anywhere between 160, maybe even 170 football games as a player and a coach. That's, that's a lot of games. No one on the sideline is thinking about how wonderful the United States is during the Star Spangled Banner. No one's thinking about, man, it's great to be an American. No one, I, I've, I've been on the sideline when the b game ball was parachuted down on the 50-yard line, and, and they're like, what? What just happened? Because I'm just thinking about the next play I have to call, the next formation, you know, things like that. A and so I think that some of this is much to do about nothing, quite honestly. None of those football players are thinking about the United States or anything. They're thinking about their assignment. A and so it's just really disturbing to me how we can take anything nowadays and, and politicize it and make it polarize us. And I just really believe as followers of Jesus Christ, God's got more for us, higher for us than that. And that's why I thought it was so important to, to take three weeks and just to talk about uh, really what it means uh, to be an American Christian, or rather a Christian American is probably the better way to put that. This is the land of the free and the home of the brave. And I love the Star Spangled Banner. I, I, I always remember Whitney Houston at the Olympics when, you know, when, when she sang that and the planes are flying over and everything. Just, 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 just so patriotic, so exciting. And we as Christians should be the best citizens, watch this now, in any nation on earth. Because we're followers of Christ, we should be the best citizens of whatever nation we find ourselves in. Because long before the Amer United States was founded, Jesus died on the cross before there was a country, the United States of America. And Jesus didn't die, just die for Americans. He died for all of humanity that would receive him as their Savior and as their Lord. He paid the price for my personal sins, but also the sins of humanity as well. Your personal sins but also for the world. For God so loved, not the United States, but God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. 
so here's the big idea. I want to give you just a big idea as we start out this morning. And if you have your Valley Christian Church app, you can just uh, follow along right here and, and fill in the blanks. We're going to be looking at a pretty lengthy passage of Scripture. I think it'll be helpful if you have your app out. By the way, that's free if you haven't downloaded it. I think we're getting close to 1,100 downloads uh, of the Valley app just since uh, about February. So great tool to just reinforce what we look at. Here's the big idea. Some things are worth dying for, but are you living for those things? Some things are worth dying for. And I hope in your heart you have some conviction that there's some stuff that's worth dying for. But I think the big question is this. For many of us, we're not going to be forced to die for our faith in Jesus Christ or die for something else. But God is asking, will you live for me? Will you live for me? Because if it's worth dying for, if he's worth dying, he's worth living for as well. And the words just keep ringing in my ears, the words of Jesus in the Gospels when he's standing there before Pontius Pilate. And he makes his statement, my kingdom is not of this world. And as I concluded last week's message, I said, you know, we have a great opportunity here, and we can really get this right as a church family, or we can just be an average, Christ, uh, an average American church that's much more American than it actually is Christian. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world, but he is a king, and his kingdom is much greater than this world, and that's what he's called you into, and that's what he's called me into as well. Not at all to be detached from, that's not what I'm saying, the political process. We have all been, should be involved with it. But we need to realize our hope is not the White House. Our, our hope for this country, this nation, this world is in the White House. It's not the schoolhouse. It's the church house. The only hope is Jesus Christ. He's the only one that can make this thing different, that can change this world. And he has no other plan but than doing it through you and through me. There are some things worth dying for, and those same things should be what we're living for as well. And so I want to look at some, a, a lot of verses today, and as I said, I hope you have your app. You can follow along. If not, we're going to have it on Scripture screen. But, but I want to look at one of my favorite characters in the New Testament named Stephen. And, and, and it was a great opportunity that was given to Stephen. And I think this is, at this moment in time we're in right now, there's a great opportunity before us, but we need to seize that moment. We need to recognize that opportunity for the Christian church and for Jesus Christ to show himself strong through our lives and touching other people's lives. And so in Acts chapter 6, let me just give you the background real quick, and then we'll jump in in verse number 8. The Holy Spirit's been poured out in Acts chapter 2. The, the, the Christian church is birthed as Jesus poured out his Holy Spirit. Day one, 3,000 are added to their number, and the Bible says that every day God added to the number. So it just grew and grew and grew and grew, and everyone's staying right there in Jerusalem. Day one is a mega church of the Christian church. Day one, God's not afraid of big numbers. And it just keeps growing and growing. And there's some widows from, from one nationality and some widows from another nationality, and, and the ones begin to complain, saying, we're getting ignored. Our needs are not being met. You know, we're getting passed over when it comes to the distribution of food. And so the disciples, they, they look at each other and they say this in the early part of Acts chapter 6. They say, it's not right for us to wait on tables. 
That word wait is pretty interesting, or serve tables. It's the Greek word diakonos. It means to serve, where we get our word deacon from. All it means is to serve. I bet you didn't even realize it when you were out at the restaurant last night and someone came up to your table and said, can I take your order? They were a deacon. That's literally what the word means in the New Testament, server. And the disciples say, is it, our responsibility is to devote ourselves to the study and the preaching of God's word and prayer which is the job description of every spiritual leader, pastor, although all kinds of stuff has been put on top of that. They said, so what we want you to do, they say to the people, look amongst yourselves, find seven men, and we will lay our hands on them and set them apart to be diakonos, servants, deacons. You can read this in the early part of Acts chapter 6. One of those men was a man named Stephen. And it says that he was full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. And so this great opportunity came to Stephen to serve the people of God as a diaconos, as a deacon. Very similar to our community group leaders that serve and care for the needs of the people in our church. That's why community groups are so important. Because it's the way that we can really care. So I can be devoted to what God's called me to be devoted to. Study and preaching of God's word and prayer. And the rest of the pastoral staff can be a coaching staff to her. And so if we look at verse 8 in Acts chapter 6, verse 8. It says, Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. He's a deacon, one of the first deacons. One of the seven. He goes on and says, Opposition arose. Everyone say opposition. Opposition arose in those days. It's nothing new. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. So, so those that are not Christian, that are Jewish, they begin to argue with Stephen because they see just God's working through his life in a powerful way. And it goes on and says, But they could not stand up against the wisdom, the Spirit. Notice that's a capital S, that's the Holy Spirit. They couldn't stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. It goes on. And then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. This is going to sound very familiar to us. It's almost like history repeating itself. Just like false accusations were brought against Jesus. Just in the same way, false accusations, trumped up charges are going to be brought against Stephen as well. And it goes on and says, So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law, and they seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. Now let me explain this, because I think sometimes we miss this aspect of the New Testament, particularly in the book of Acts and in the Gospels. When Rome, the Roman Empire, would come in and they would conquer a nation or conquer a province or a people, they would establish, the best way I could explain it is this, a macro-government. A macro-sized government, like a federal government in a sense. But they would keep in place the local government. And they would allow the local government to function as long as they didn't mess with the big picture macro stuff. The local government in Israel at the time was the Sanhedrin. They were the civil government. And so they weren't just the religious leaders. They actually had the power to execute people. They had the power to punish people as well. 
So Stephen is being brought before the Sanhedrin. It's not just a bunch of religious leaders. These are the civil government. He's standing before the civil government, and they're saying they have uh, false accusations that they're going to bring against him. And his life, he knows, is hanging in the balance because they can order that he be executed. I can't order anyone be executed, and I wouldn't want that power. But there was no separation, if you will, of church and state back then. It was all the same. And so he's standing before the Sanhedrin, and there's false accusations that they've actually worked behind the scenes to bring against him. So that's who the Sanhedrin are, and let's go on. And it says, they produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against his holy place, the temple, and against the law. That's the Old Testament law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch, it's called, uh, of the Old Testament. And it goes on and it says, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the place, that's the temple, and change the customs Moses handed down to us. Now, Stephen didn't say that, but that's what the accusation was. Then it goes on and says, All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. They bring these false accusations against him. Stephen, one of the first deacons, and they're looking at him, and he knows his life is hanging in the balance, and his face is just glowing with the presence of God. Now, pretty interesting right after this Stephen defends himself he offers up a defense he speaks on his own behalf and and and, you know Susie and I we met in Bible college in Bible college I had to learn not only communication class I had to take homiletics advanced homiletics hermeneutics exegesis all these things are the public speaking one of the things that you hear if you've even taken just a just any college communication course always talk about the importance of an introduction and a conclusion and the conclusion you really want to I remember one of my professors he's like you just want to choke the life out of people in that conclusion you want it to hit them so hard it's like boom and it's like that's what they that's the handle that they carry that message with this is one of the sermons that's recorded for us in scripture that Stephen launches into it's the second longest sermon that's recorded for us in scripture second only to Jesus's sermon on the mount and I'm not going to take the time to, to talk to, to read through the whole entire sermon that Stephen gives. You can read it yourself in Acts chapter 6. But he goes to the conclusion, and, and I'm like, what in the world is he thinking? Because it is not the way you want to win friends and influence people. It's not the conclusion that I, I've never heard a conclusion like this. And so let's jump to the conclusion. Verse 51 of Acts chapter 7, this is his conclusion to the sermon. This is what Stephen says. You stiff-necked people. How about if I just did that? You stiff-necked people. Everyone's like, whoa, whoa. Step off, Greg. What's going on? This is his conclusion. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. Now, now think about what this meant to the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Sanhedrin. Circumcision in Judaism was a sign of the covenant with Abraham and God. And it was, it was like so important to them. And if you don't know what circumcision is, I'm not going to explain it right now. But anyway, it was a sign of their purity and devotion to God. And Stephen, in his conclusion right here, Stephen makes this statement. 
You're stiff-necked. Your hearts and ears are uncircumcised. He says, in essence, you think you're pure, but you're filthy from God's perspective. Whew. He goes on and he says, you are, uh, if we could just go back, let me finish that. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. And he's going to indict them for generations in the past. Watch this. He goes on now. He says, was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. That's Jesus, another name for the Christ. And now you have betrayed and you murdered him. And he continues. He goes on. You have received you who have received the law that was given through angels, but you have not obeyed it. And he keeps on talking. And you can just feel the tension in the room building more and more and more as he speaks. He goes on and says, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. Have you ever seen that before? We used to have guinea pigs. And then when they were about to like go at each other, they start gnashing their teeth. And it's like, da, 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 da. And, and maybe because we had them outside and it was 20 below. But anyway, that's, a, that's not really why they were doing it. But they got, da, 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 da. you'd hear their teeth go, and that's what they were doing. They were so angry. They're going, oh, and they're just boiling at this point because of what Stephen is saying. The Bible goes on and says, but Stephen, watch this now, full of the Holy Spirit, he looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God. Don't miss this. This is huge. We're going to just sit down here for a minute. I'm going to unpack this. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Every instance in the New Testament that talks about Jesus after his death, his crucifixion, his resurrection, 40 days later, the Bible says that he taught the disciples, and we don't have recorded what he taught in those 40 days. And then he ascended. He returned to our Heavenly Father. Every reference that talks about Jesus, it says he's seated at the right hand of the Father, except this one. Why? It says that Stephen, he gives this scathing sermon in the conclusion, said, you murdered the Christ. And they're about to just unleash on him and literally execute him by stoning him to death, pelting his body with rocks. And he looks up, and his face is glowing like an angel. He saw the glory of God in Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Why was he standing? I think it's because Jesus was seated on the throne and he saw what was going on and he knew what was in the hearts of the Sanhedrin. And he saw the bravery and the boldness and he saw the freedom that Stephen had to truly represent him on earth in that moment before those people. And he knew Stephen's life was about to be snuffed out. And Jesus stood to his feet and gave Stephen a standing ovation. Stephen says, I see him standing. Only time in the New Testament it says that Jesus is standing at the right hand of the Father. It, it's like, kind of like Jesus said, 
Daddy, I can't, I can't sit here and watch this. Look, look, look at Stephen. Look at my brave follower. Look, look at the one who's using his freedom. Not just to die for me. He's living for me, Father. He's living for me. I can't stay seated anymore. He recognizes there's something bigger at stake here than, than just some sort of governmental political process. He's going to live for me, and he's also willing to die for me. Powerful. Powerful. As he realized Stephen was transcending the, the temporal in that moment. And recognizing there are bigger things going on. Much, much bigger things happening. And then he goes on and says, Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And then the Bible says, he goes on and says, At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at Stephen. And it says, and they dragged him out of the city and they began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses, don't miss this now, laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Don't miss this, we're going to come back to this. There's this young man and the scripture just makes point. He's watching all of this and he, he's really affirming everything that the Sanhedrin are doing. And his name as he witnesses what Stephen is going through and his martyrdom, the first Christian martyr, to give his life for Christ. And this young man's name was Saul. And then it goes on and says, and while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed. See if this sounds familiar at all. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. What did Jesus say when he was on the cross? Father, I, into your hands I commit sounds a lot like his Lord, doesn't it? Father, receive my spirit. And then he goes on and it says, and then he fell on his knees and he cried out, see if this isn't like deja vu. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Sounds like the words of our Savior and Lord on the cross, doesn't it? Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And that, that falling asleep is not like some of you were before I started clapping my hands. That falling asleep actually, <laughs> yeah, see, I saw you. So anyway, that falling asleep means that he died. He gave up his spirit. See, see Stephen not only knew there's some things worth dying for, there's some things worth living for. And in his last point, he recognized there's an opportunity here. And it transcends Stephen to the Sanhedrin. That God is doing such something much, much bigger at a macro level than the micro moment that I find myself in in Jerusalem as a deacon of the first Christian church before the Sanhedrin. And I believe this is the perspective that God wants us to have. Because right now in our country, it's just so much conflict going on. We need to look up and see there's, there's greater things that God is doing. And we have a tremendous opportunity before us right now in this moment 
one more verse that I want to look at, and, and then I just want to apply it to where we are today. Acts chapter 8, verse 1, it says, And Saul approved of their killing him. And on that day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And there's this guy named Saul who approved of it all. If you know the rest of the story, you know that this actually led to incredible good in the Christian church, the death of Stephen, his martyrdom. How could something so bad lead to something so good? See, in our very just, just worldly, fleshly perspective, we think bad things always equal bad outcomes, bad ripple effects, but that's not the case at all with God. In fact, Romans 8.28 puts it this way, For we know that all things work together for good for those that love God and are called according to His purpose. And we see something, you know, we, we see conflict in our country, we, we see problems and, and, and strife and bombs and all this stuff, and we say, it's bad, it's bad, it's bad. And God says, look to me, because I can make good out of bad. That's exactly what happened with Stephen, and I believe that's the opportunity that we have before us as well, that God can bring good out of what everyone else may define as bad. God says, you trust me, you follow me, you follow my direction, and I can bring good out of it. How can something so bad bring so much good, as we'll see shortly after this with this young man named Saul let me share with you four things about opportunities the opportunities that Stephen had and I think the opportunity that we have right here, right now, September 2016 this moment that we live in that we can apply to this present moment that we find ourselves in as a church family First thing is this, opportunities often begin as an obstacle. Opportunities often begin as an obstacle. There were, there were widows in the church that were being ignored, and they began to complain. And, and, and the disciples were like, oh, we've got to do something else. Pick seven people. Pick seven people. We'll lay hands on them. We'll set them apart. And, and it looked like this, this obstacle, like, oh, goodness, we, you know, we, we can't do this. What are we going to do? This is a problem. This is difficulty. How are we going to solve this? But it was really an opportunity. It was an opportunity. Opportunities often begin as obstacles. I, I remember even uh, as a church, God blessing our church and our church growing and growing and growing. And we're like, man, I was preaching three services, and the people just kept, the church kept filling up. And I'm like, I can't do four. I'll die. I will die. And at the time, we're like, wait, this just doesn't seem right to, like, like, you know, go buy another 20 acres and build a multi-million dollar building. It just doesn't seem right. And, and then it was like this obstacle. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? And then I heard about this whole idea of multi-site. And, and Susie and I were at a conference, and we ran into the folks uh, from Regal Cinemas that are saying, on a national level, come use our theaters for your church. And I was like, this is a crazy obstacle. But what it really was, was an opportunity. An opportunity to reach more people. And 
so right now, even as we speak, there's a couple hundred people in Poughkeepsie that are listening to this same message that we recorded on Thursday, and we're reaching more people, and we've had 56 people receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior since January through our church. Isn't that amazing? I think you should give God glory for that. Last year, we had 105. Think about that. 160 plus since we launched that campus between both campuses. We saw it as an obstacle. It was an opportunity. It was an opportunity. Here's the second, second thing about opportunity. Opportunity brings responsibility, and no one talks about that. Opportunity brings responsibility. You know, God, I just we, we just need that house. The house is what we need. Or, or God, we just need a reliable car. You know, God, we just need, God, we just want children. You know, we want children so bad. Opportunity brings responsibility. I remember when Susie and I, you know, now we're like empty nesters and everything. We've been thinking back on those first four years we were married and living in a one-bedroom apartment down in Fishkill. I mean, the place was so small. You had to like step in the hall just to have room to change your mind. That's how tiny it was. And, uh, and I remember we found this house of foreclosure over in Sylvan, Sylvan Lake. And I remember talking to Jamie Fergella. He wasn't on the staff uh, like he is now, the executive pastor. And uh, uh, he's just been a member of the church and a, and a leader for, for almost 40 years. And, uh, and I remember talking to Jamie. And I said, Jamie, we found this house. And we're so excited about it. And we just can't wait. You know, it's a foreclosure. We've got to move down. And he's like, Greg, I'm out. He said, let me just tell you, your life's about to change. I said, what do you mean? He said, with every opportunity, there's responsibility. He, he said, now you're in that one-bedroom apartment, and you just wake up, and on Saturday, what am I going to do? But when you wake up on a Saturday in your home, and it's summertime, you got to cut the grass. And when the faucet leaks in your apartment, you just call the landlord, right? But when it leaks at your house, what are you going to do? And when there's something that's got to be fixed, that's on you, Greg. And he said, every opportunity brings new responsibility. Everybody loves to hold the baby, but somebody's got to change that poopy diaper. Every opportunity has greater responsibility. The more opportunity that you get, the greater your chances are that you're going to fail. And that I'm going to fail. But if you fail, let me just say this. Fail fast and forget about it. Don't fixate on the failure. Linger on the lesson. We all fail. We all make mistakes. We all fall down. But don't fixate on the failure. Linger on the lesson. What is the lesson that I need to learn through this, Lord? Focus on that. When I was a quarterback coach, uh, coach in high school football at John Jay and, and at Lord's High School, you know, a quarterback would throw an interception and he'd, first responsibility is to come off the field and, and the head coach would normally really rip him a, up one side and down the other and then he'd come over to sugar daddy coach and, uh, and I would just say listen you got to have a short memory if you're going to be a successful quarterback you've got to look why did you do that he's like well coach I didn't look off the safety and I should have looked off the safety before I threw the football and I threw it right into that zone and he picked it off I was like now you got the lesson now forget about it forget about what happened because you're going to have to lead this team down the field and we're going to need a score don't fixate on the failure. Learn the lesson and move forward. But every opportunity brings responsibility. Every one. In Luke chapter 12, verse 48, it says this, From everyone, 
who has been given, for everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded, and from the one who has been entrusted with much, much will be asked. Responsibility with opportunity. Here's the third thing. Opportunity brings vulnerability. Vulnerability. With, with every opportunity, it makes us more susceptible, doesn't it? It makes us more vulnerable. I do really thank you for your prayers this past week. On Tuesday night, I, I, I spoke to, to all the leaders at the conference. And afterwards, but actually before, we had a council meeting. And one of the members of the council is just so uh, full of wisdom. In fact, I've invited him to come early next year to preach, he and his wife. And he said, Greg, you know what I think we really need? We, we need to hear from you about you about what God's doing in New York. So Monday night, I changed the message all around. Tuesday night, I stood up there, knees shaking, my pastor, Dr. Cottle, standing out there, you know, number two Greek scholar living in the planet today, and I'm like, ay, 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 ay. And I just shared a lot about our story, which is the story of Valley Christian Church. And when we got back to the room that night, I said, baby, I feel like I... I feel like I'm the president now. And so many people came up to me and said, Greg, that, that was like life-changing. How can we get a recording of that? How can we get a video of that? Because I realized it's a great opportunity, but I need to be even more vulnerable with those people so that they knew who I really was and what God's doing, just awesome things in and through the Valley family. Here's the fourth thing about opportunity. Opportunity brings opposition. Opportunity brings opposition. Listen, I'm, I'm not a doom and gloom person. I, I'm not like a doomsday f at all. I'm an eternal optimist because I like to focus on Jesus instead of the world. That being said, it just seems like, doesn't it? In our culture, it's like okay to be anything except a Christian. Because if you're a Christian, you're just a narrow-minded bigot. If you're a Christian, that's just so passe. And there's op opposition. Recently, I don't know if you saw it, if you're a sports fan, you probably did, but head coach at Clemson University was asked about some of the racial tension that's going on in our nation and he stood up and he said we don't have a race problem he said we have a sin problem he said the problem is sin in our nation and he is being lambasted in the media right now because he made that statement this is a strong Christian just raked over the coals Opportunity brings opposition. We've got to realize there have always been those that oppose the Christian church just like they did in Acts chapter 6, 7, and 8. And it's so important that we know what we're willing to die for, but are we willing to live for Jesus as well in the face of opposition? To love the way that he loved, to be the people that God's called us to be, to follow in his footsteps, just like Stephen did. 
The philosopher Aristotle put it this way, to avoid criticism, say nothing, do nothing, and be nothing. And my fear is that's a lot of a description of the American church today. Say nothing, do nothing, be nothing. Much more American than Christian. I think God has more for us than that. The reason that God chose Stephen was that he knew he would be brave enough in the face of opposition. And I believe God is asking us, will you be brave enough? Will you use the freedom that you have in this great nation to be brave in the face of opposition? Jesus died for you. And as I said before, most of us are never going to have to face that, will I die for him? But every one of us face it every moment of the day. Will we live for him? Will we live for him? Will we make a difference and live for him in our neighborhoods? Will we make a difference and live for him in our community? Will we make a difference and live for him in our nation? Let me put it this way. The goal of your life should be to outlive your own life. The, the goal of your life is that once you're gone and you're with Christ in heaven in eternity, the ripple effect of your life continues on. Just like Stephen. It's exactly what happened to this young man, Stephen. Think about it, folks. Where would we be as Americans today if it weren't for John Adams and Thomas Jefferson? That their life still makes an impact on us hundreds of years later. Where would we be today if it weren't for Abraham Lincoln who in the face of opposition said I'm going to pass this emancipation proclamation and although all the so many in the government said don't do it don't do it I'm going to do it where would we be where would we be without Martin Luther King Jr. when he began to voice what was wrong and, and really launching and he wasn't the only voice but one of the main voices in the civil rights movement and when so many people said boy sit down and shut your mouth Where would we be? Where would we be without the bravery of those who have gone before us that used their freedom not for themselves but for others to help them and in many cases bring about ultimately what I believe in many cases was God's desire for this nation. The goal of your life should be to outlive your own life. Let me end with this thought. What we do today affects everything and everyone tomorrow. What we're doing right now. We're not waiting till November, folks. November can come and go. The election can come and go. If we are not the people of God that he has called us to be, nothing's going to change no matter who's sitting in the White House. Nothing. What we do today affects everything and everyone tomorrow. And, and so I, I mentioned to you, it says there in Acts that, that they're Stephen, Paul, um, they're, they're stoning uh, Stephen. They're stoning Stephen. And there's this guy named Saul, and he's watching and he's approving what happens. Some of you know the rest of the story. Saul 
is persecuting the church. And Jesus Christ appears to him and knocks him off his horse. And he repents of his sin and he receives Christ as his Savior. And he changes his name to the Apostle Paul. And the Holy Spirit speaks through him and he just writes two-thirds of the New Testament. Stephen, life snuffed out and we would say, what a tragedy. But God brought about incredible good from the martyrdom of Stephen. And Saul was there and it impacted him. And when Jesus appeared, it completely changed him and turned him around. Where would we be right now as followers of Jesus Christ if it weren't for a free, brave young man named Stephen who was not only willing to die for Jesus, he was willing to live for him. Half of Western culture completely hinges on this one life of this guy named Paul. Whole perspective, the way we think, the way we analyze, all of that. So much goes back to the writings, inspired writings of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. Where would we be right now as a church, as a culture, as a Western civilization? Because of Stephen using his freedom and his bravery, the killer becomes a Christian. The persecutor becomes a preacher. The murderer becomes the greatest missionary that's ever been known to man. The Apostle Paul. Stephen was so free that he could lay down his life for his Lord and Savior. He was so brave that he didn't fear death. His death led to life. And many of us are here today because of that ripple effect, that not just the ripple, it is the ripple that Jesus started. And then, G and then Stephen just like threw that rock in the pond just kept going and going as well. And Paul was impacted by it. Thousands of years later, we're still feeling the impact of it today. You're never freer than when you lay down your life for Jesus. You're never braver than when you obey what he tells you to do. That's what God wants us to use our freedom for. That's what he wants to make us brave for, is to be the people of God that he created us to be and that Jesus died for. Would you bow your heads with me right now? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just pray that even as the rain is falling right now, Lord, that we would recognize that you really do want to reign over our lives and through our lives. Father, help us by your Holy Spirit, Lord, to see that obstacles are really opportunities, difficulties are opportunities that you want to work in and through our lives, Lord. Help us, Lord, to recognize the responsibility that comes with these opportunities, the vulnerability that comes with these opportunities, and sometimes even the opposition. God, may we use the freedom that we have in this great nation and the bravery that your Holy Spirit gives us not to be short-sighted but Lord have a heavenly and eternal perspective 
that, that Lord, you're not waiting till November or January or any time. Lord, you've got things you want to do in and through our lives today to touch our neighbors, to touch our community, to touch this state, to touch this region, to touch this nation, to touch this world. Open our eyes, Lord, to see the opportunities and not to see as obstacles. In Jesus' name we pray.